0: Call attention to something that we put in your hands every week, and I'm sure you take it home, pour over it, read it over and over throughout the week, pray over these prayer requests. But there's something on the very back that uh, I think will serve as a good introduction to our sermon tonight. If you have one, uh, pull it out and just flip it over to the very back page that says Sermon Notes, and it's blank. And at the very bottom of that, you see a highlighted box there, gray. It says Our Vision and Our Core Values. Um, The temple vision to become authentic, loving followers of Jesus who are experiencing life transformation through God's word for the purposes of impacting our world. Uh, On the front, I think it says, Our mission to love Him fully and follow Him faithfully. As we've begun this study in James uh, on Sunday nights, that's exactly what He is trying to help us do. That's exactly what He's teaching us to do. He's pushing us beyond a shallow faith and religion to a mature faith, and one that works and one that demonstrates a real faith that is alive um, and strong in our obedience to Jesus, one that will allow us uh, to accomplish our vision as individuals and as a church. And we know that without faith it's impossible to please God. But James teaches us that a true faith must be mature and alive. Uh, Immature faith is marked by double-mindedness, foolishness, but mature faith is tested and proven. And that's what James is teaching us how to do, how to become fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. So tonight in our text, James introduces us, James 2, uh, to the sinful usher and shows us that the love of God does not show favoritism. And as mature believers, we must not either. So let's read uh, James 2. We're going to read the first verse and camp out there for a little while, okay? I promise you we'll get to the end, so don't lose faith in me, all right? But we're going to read just the first verse and spend a good deal of time here. He says this in James 2. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. The love of God does not discriminate, and as believers, we must not either. In verse 1, James tells us, not to show partiality, not to show favoritism, but to hold on. And he gives us these three considerations uh, that serve as a rebuttal to showing favoritism. Later on, he'll tell us a story about the sinful usher. But before we get there, let's pause here for a moment and grasp these three things. Uh, he warns us not to show partiality and give, gives us these three things that we need to hold on to. First, he says, the first thing James does is remind us that we're family, over and over in James, you see this use of the word "brothers, brothers, brothers, my brothers, my brethren, and he's not excluding you, ladies in that. He's, it's just a, a term that includes you as ladies, men and women, as a family of God. He calls us family, uh, four other times in James that he reminds us that we're part of god's family, that we're one together. we're not acquaintances, we're not just friends or people who attend the same church. But we're a part of God's family together. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. And it's a good thing we're family, right? Otherwise, we wouldn't be able to put up with some of the shenanigans that go on around here, right? I mean, poor Dwight, there's no way he could love Reggie Bridges after all the trouble he gives him, you know, if we weren't family, right? And none of us could put up with Bill Cox if we didn't love him, right? He's always trying to fire me, but I love him anyway, all right? He can tell you about that later. Every week he threatens to fire me, but... But I still love him. We have a lot of fun, though. And and that's the way it should be because we're a family. We are the family of God. James says, hold on to that. Don't forget that you are a family by showing partiality, by showing favoritism. We're all one in Christ, he says. Our identity is not found in our wealth, in worldly values, but in the family of God. That should be where our identity is grounded and what we're known for. What, What if we were known... Not because of our job or where we worked or our our career, but because we were a part of the church of God that was doing amazing things in Ruston, and that was our identity. What if people went up to you around town and said, Aren't you a part of that church that did this or did that and is turning this community upside down? People would ask you everywhere you went, What's going on at your church? What's happening there? Wouldn't that be incredible? If our identity was so caught up in the family of God and in our church that that's what people knew us for. That's what we were known for, that we were a family of God. Now, this word partiality or favoritism is not used in uh, secular Greek. That's interesting. It, it's a Christian word uh, in the New Testament. It's, uh, it's been baptized, I guess. It's not even used in the first five books of the Bible, the Septuagint. So this problem, however, was apparently common in the church because it's used quite a bit in the New Testament. All right. Five other times in the New Testament is this word used and the issues raised uh, from various leaders and various churches pointing out that God does not show favoritism. It literally means this to receive the face. Now, that didn't help me understand what it meant either. So hopefully this will help you. A better definition is this. It's to make judgments and distinctions based on external considerations such as physical appearance, social status, or race. So this word, partiality or favoritism, this is the definition behind it. I'll read it again. It's to make judgments and distinctions based on external considerations such as physical appearance, social status, or race. So favoritism is a threat to our church. James makes it clear it was a threat to their church. And we must be careful not to show partiality, James reminds us. Let us be the people of God who love one another despite our faults, who dig deep together, who stick together, and who work together for the kingdom of God. Our task is too important for favoritism or or partiality to get in the way, to cause us to be distracted or to lose our focus. We're a part of God's family. That's our identity, James tells us. We need to hold on to that. Um, our identity is not found in our appearance, our career, our race, or anything else. We must hold on to one another. I need you, and you need me. We need each other. That might be a scary thing, right? But we need each other, James is telling us, and we need to hold on to that tightly. We need to grasp that. Secondly, Jesus, uh, James encouraged us to hold on to Jesus, our Lord and the Lord of glory. This is just the one of two times that James even mentions Jesus in the whole book. But he mentions him right off the bat here. Hold on to Jesus, he says. Isn't it amazing that we even have the option to hold on to Jesus? Scripture says that when we draw near to him, he will draw near to us. We can seek him and find him when we seek him with all of our hearts. The fact that we can even... Know Jesus and hold on to him and have a relationship with him is amazing. It's a miracle in and of itself. And James reminds us don't take that for granted. Hold on to that. When we hold on to Jesus, it means we have to let go of some other things. When we hold on to Jesus, we have to let go of everything else that divides us partiality, favoritism, racism, our differences. We have to let go of fear, we have to let go of sin. Just to name a few things I think James was talking about. When we hold on to Jesus, he helps us let go of the things that divide us. He helps us let go of the things that distract us. He helps us let go of the things that keep us from finding our identity in one another. When we fail to hold on to him, we can always know that Jesus holds on to us, though. It's not up to us, but it doesn't happen apart from us. We have a role and we have a part to play, James says. We need to hold on to Jesus. And thirdly, he says, James also tells us to hold on to faith. The opposite of faith is fear. Faith comes from God. Fear comes from the devil. I'm not talking about the fear of the Lord, but I mean like the fear that stops you from following the Lord, the fear that causes you to be afraid of the cost or causes you to fear what people might think of you for following the Lord or causes you to be afraid of the consequences of following God wherever he's leading. When God calls us to do something good and right, then we have to hold on to the faith, James says. Uh, we can't let fear slow us down or stop us from being obedient to God. And too often we live in fear instead of faith. We walk by fear instead of faith. But James says, hold on to faith and you won't discriminate. You won't show favoritism. 2 Timothy 1, 6 through 6-7 says this, For this reason I remind you to fan the flame, the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear but of power and of love, And of self control. We forget that the Lord's given us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self control. Lord, we need to hear that today. I need to hear that. In order to hold on to the things James wants us to hold on to, he says we have to let go of some other things. We can't have both. We have to let go of favoritism. We have to let go of anything that divides us. We have to let go of racism. We have to let go of fear, James says. All right, verse two James introduces us to the sinful usher. How many ushers we got here tonight don 't be shy i didn 't say any sin- how many sinful ushers we got We got a few ushers here. Some of you already did your job tonight. We just assume you 're sinful. look, we know you you know you 're like us you 're man. but I hope this story isn 't about any of you. James tells us a story about two people who entered an assembly. Uh, it could have been a religious uh, service, it could have been a worship service, but scholars are not really in agreement on what type of setting uh, it was. Some people believe it was a worship service. Some thought it might just be like a judicial assembly where outsiders from the church would come in and believers would come and they would just meet together uh, and come together. So let's take a look and we're going to read verses 2 through 7. So we'll nail down a few more verses and then we'll see what happens uh, with the sinful usher as we're introduced to him. It says here, For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly and a poor man in shabby clothing comes in also... Are not the rich the one who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? So James tells a story about two people, right, who enter into an assembly. Uh, One is a rich man. Uh, It says they knew he was rich by his appearance, right? Uh, He had on fine clothes. He had on jewelry. He was well-dressed. He looked at the part. Uh, interestingly enough the rich man didn't do anything wrong here he came to this assembly maybe even came to worship uh, the lord and he didn't do anything wrong Uh, but also there's a poor man who appeared to be poor he had shabby clothes it said he had nothing nice to wear or any jewelry Uh, but also he didn't sin either he he came to the right place with the right heart and he did nothing wrong it was the usher who sinned it's always the usher's fault right the count was off. Forgot the offering plates. You know, somebody didn't show up and he didn't get a replacement. No, I'm just kidding. It's not always Dusher's fault, but in this this case, it was. Um, he chose to judge these two men based on their outward appearance. Right? I mean, he looked at them, sized them up, and he gave the rich man uh, the nice seat, the good seat, the seat of importance, and he shooed the poor man over into the corner or on the floor near his feet. Scripture says. Thankfully, God is not like the sinful usher. Uh, Even if this didn't take place in a worship service, even if it was a social gathering or something, wouldn't the same usher display the same favoritism inside the church? Probably so. Sure he would. I I think the same um, partialism and favoritism that he showed outside the church would bleed over into the church. We can't just turn it on and off when we enter for worship and then go about our lives differently the rest of the week. One commentator said it like this. In each case, the treatment of the visitor was based on superficial, self-interested, and worldly motives. Among Christians, such discrimination is much more than poor hospitality. It's plain evil. So God doesn't show favoritism, thankfully, like the sinful usher, and we must not either. Why doesn't God show favoritism? If anybody had a right to show or play favorites, it would be him, right? But God's impartiality is asserted all throughout the New Testament. I'm not going to read them all to you, but here's just a few. 1 Peter 1, Acts 10, Ephesians 6, Colossians 3, Romans 2. So Peter, Luke, Paul, and James all wrote about the impartiality of God and the problems in the church regarding favoritism. So it was pretty widely um, addressed throughout the New Testament. In Acts 10, as a matter of fact, I'll tell you about this one and read this one. Uh, The Lord gives Peter a vision, remember, to take the gospel to the Gentiles, a a race of people that they were not supposed to associate with. And Peter is addressing the Gentiles after going and sharing with Cornelius' family, and he says this in verse 34 and 35. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that the Lord shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. And we know Jesus became friends of sinners welcomes children women samaritans the poor demon-possessed men jews gentiles to follow him and to receive forgiveness and eternal life and that should be our example to follow god doesn't show partiality because it's evil verse 4 tells us verse 4 points out some have said god is not a respecter of persons and knowing us the way he does can you blame him you know he doesn't respect us how could he we are All pitiful to the same degree, I think, might be a good way to describe it. But favoritism is a threat to unity. Uh, Earlier, remember, James told us to hold on to the family of God. One of the things close, I think, to God's heart about the church and the family of God is that we be unified. Um, Lots of things were at stake here, but I think certainly one of them uh, is unity. It's been said that Sunday mornings is the most segregated hour in our nation, and this must grieve the heart of God. And it should us as well. The church should be a place where faith, hope, and love confront racism, and we need to do better. The gospel and racism don't mix. Galatians 3 says this, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. Jesus came to break down every barrier that divides us, including race. I saw an article this weekend that that you may be interested in. The New York Times actually published this article, and it hits on a similar topic. the, The title of the topic was this, A Quiet Exodus While Black Worshippers Are Leaving White Evangelical Churches. That the world looks at the church and notices favoritism and racism must break the heart of God. If the New York Times can write about it, it must be obvious. We can do better when we hold on to the gospel and reject favoritism and racism. One of the exercises I did this week that I personally did I thought was helpful was I just sat down and tried to think as far back as I could about friends that I had had throughout my life that were different races than me. And it was really a lot of fun to reminisce about memories I had of different people at different stages in life. Uh, But it was also uh, a wake-up call that I need more friends that are different than me. Um, And that might be be an exercise that you might find helpful as well. Um, Certainly, we all have friends that are different races, but um, we need more. And we need to invite them to worship with us and to pray for them. Uh, The gospel, by its very nature, forms community. D.A. Carson says this about the church. He says, the church is made up of natural enemies. What binds us together is not common education, common race, common income levels, common politics, common nationality, common accents, common jobs, or anything else of that sort. Christians come together because they all have been saved by Jesus Christ. They're a band of natural enemies who love one another for Jesus' sake. Amen to that. It's hard not to show favoritism, though, is it? I don't mean racism, but favoritism. I mean, we all want to feel important, right? We all want to associate with people that are important and successful. Um, We look good when we do, right? And when others see us, it gives us a sense of accomplishment or pride for some reason. And as long as we go about that with the right motives, there's nothing wrong with that. But the problem is our sinful nature always gets in the way and too often messes things up for us. So what are some of the ways we're tempted to show favoritism in church today? I mean, in Temple Baptist Church in Ruston, Louisiana, uh, what are some ways that we are tempted to show favoritism. Well, if we're honest, we struggle with issues just like the New Testament church did. We're no different from them. That's one of the amazing things about the Bible is, no matter how long ago that book or that letter was written, man, it applies today just as much as it did hundreds and thousands of years ago. Uh, I thought of a couple things. When we elect and vote for leadership positions, are we tempted to nominate or vote for the most successful people in the church? Or do we nominate and elect those people who may not be as successful but they're servants and they're faithful to the Lord, they're faithful to the church? I mean, deacons, committees, teachers, do we only think of those people who are successful and act like they have it all together? Uh, it's something for us to think about, I think. I, I don't have anyone or anything specific in mind, but and I don't think that's just our church. I think that's any church. But I think that's one way that we're tempted to show favoritism. Maybe not it's to give the rich man a nice seat and to kick the poor man into the curb, but I think that's one way we're tempted. Uh, We're all tempted to to show favoritism. Okay, so in closing, James gives us a cure for favoritism. He gives us a cure for the problem that ails the New Testament church and the problem we struggle with in verse 8 and verse 9. Let's read that together. It says, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself you're doing well. But if you show partiality, you're committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. So, so many times in scripture, uh, so many times scripture commands us not to do something, right? Over and over we see in different books of the Bible in different places, scripture says, don't do this, don't do this, don't do that, don't do that. And some people get so caught up in the do nots that they They fail to keep reading because almost in every instance where there's a do not, where Scripture says do not do this, do not do that, almost in every instance it's followed by a command to do, a better way to do something. Scripture tells us don't do this, but instead do this. And in this case, the cure is simple. James says love your neighbor as yourself. The cure to favoritism is to love your neighbor as yourself. That that should be our goal. Who's our neighbor? Well, the disciples asked Jesus' this very same question once in the New Testament. And you probably remember he responded by telling them a parable of the Good Samaritan. And so our neighbor is the person in need that God brings into our life. Our neighbor is the man who sits on the corner with a sign that says, Hungry, please help. God bless. Our neighbor is the single mom behind us in the checkout line that is struggling to get by. Our neighbor is the person who looks different than us, but is our brother and sister in Christ. Our neighbor is the family who lives across the street but doesn't know the Lord. Our neighbor is the person who works in the next office that's separated from his wife and lonely. Our neighbor is the church member who's at Lincoln Parish Detention Center after another bad choice. Our neighbor is the stranger who shows up on a Sunday morning alone and looking for God. Our neighbor is the widow who finds herself alone after decades with the man she loved. And the love of God does not discriminate, and neither should we. The only choice we have as believers is to love them with the gospel of Jesus Christ. James tells us that's what mature faith looks like. That's a faith that pleases God. Let me pray for us. God, thank you for your holy word which guides us, instructs us, corrects us, and helps us lord we we confess we have made a mess of life of faith of church at times and we need your guidance we need your help we need to be under the lordship of jesus christ and your scriptures and uh, thank you lord for this study we've begun in james just a few weeks ago and how it is encouraging us and sharpening us as believers and um, encouraging our faith to to leave the shallow end and to to drift off into the deep end of a mature faith that um, looks like you and acts like you. And God, help us. Uh, We need your help in these areas and others. And God, we need your courage and wisdom. And uh, Lord, as we attempt to be obedient to you, God, help us to hold on to the things that James tells us to hold on to, Um, our family, our church family, Jesus, our faith. And not be distracted by the things that divide us or lead us away. And thank you, God, that you're a God who judges fairly. You're a God who loves equally. You are perfect in all your ways. And help us to be more like you today and in the days ahead. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right.